Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter and today I'm very excited to be joined by Ian Lance and Nick Purvis of RWC Partners. Ian and Nick uh, run a handful of UK equity funds and late last year they took on the big beast of the investment trust world, uh, Temple Bar, the value-oriented UK equity income fund. Um, both of you, thank you very much for joining. I, I think it's fair to say that you would uh, describe yourselves as among the various dedicated value investors in the UK equity space. Your predecessor on Temple Bar was another well-known value investor, Alistair Mundy. But I always remember he was very quotable. Uh, he was well-known for saying things like, I dig through other people's bins when looking for investments. But first of all, if, if that is part of being contrarian and being a value investor, the inevitable question is, how, how do you avoid the rubbish? How do you avoid those value traps? What do you, what do you have in place there? I, th- I think that's a, a really good place to start, actually. And it's something that has been um, discussed a lot in the last few years. Is, is, you know, we, we as value investors have almost been accused, haven't we, of, of, of basically just buying cheap rubbish and buying structural decliners. And that's become increasingly pertinent in this world in which you know, certain sectors have these new beasts which have come in to dominate them and all, 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 all the incumbents seem to be going by the wayside. Um, our, our answer to that, I suppose, is, 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 is a couple of things. The first thing is that actually we think that that, um, that, that, that idea that there are a sort of handful of companies that are going to conquer the earth and everyone else goes by the wayside is, is actually overdone. And not only is it overdone, but it actually it throws up some really interesting opportunities. So if, if I maybe give you an example, you know, everyone knows that Amazon is a very large and powerful company and everyone knows that some retailers are going to struggle with that. But that actually doesn't mean that all retailers are going to struggle with it. So um, within our portfolio, we own Dixon's Carphone, um, which in UK electrical retail is, is actually has a better market position than Amazon, um, can actually underprice Amazon. And yet that's not how the shares are priced. I think I think a lot of investors have a tendency to sort of throw the baby out with about bathwater um, and, and just assume that, you know, that, that, that all these companies are going to go by the wayside. And, and life is just actually more nuanced than that. And it does throw up some interesting opportunities. Um, the second thing that I'll say is that we, Nick, Nick and I, maybe have a slightly different approach to um, to Al. Al. Al was maybe what you might describe as a, a sort of deep value recovery investor. So he really would go for businesses that were um, that were in real trouble, um, but which he thought were underpriced anyway. We, we, we will sometimes describe our approach as sustainable value. And by, by that, we mean we're looking for businesses where we think they're, they're going through a temporary downturn, but actually, we, we do think they have the ability to grow on a long term basis and where we think that five years from now, actually earnings are going to be materially higher than they are today. Um, so, so, so that is, it's just a slightly different way, I think, of, uh, of, of looking at things. What kind of mix do you think you have of, I suppose, kind of idiosyncratic potential recovery plays and more, you know, sector based focuses? Yeah, yeah, it's quite a hard one to answer. I suppose if we step back a second, you know, what what, what does value investing mean for us? It, it, we we basically think that investors have a tendency to um, extrapolate and overreact, and you know, we were just talking about an example of that. But they do it in all in, in various different ways. So uh, the credit cycle might be one example. The commodity cycle might be an example. So so when things are good, people think they'll stay good. 
when they're bad, they think they will stay bad. And, and, and in essence, what that does is it means that share prices move by more than is warranted in the change in the underlying intrinsic value of the business. So, so I suppose coming back to try to answer your question, what that means is that we'll have we'll have whole swathes of industries that we think are, are, are in the, I suppose, in the sweet spot of the cycle. Um, so we, energy might be one of those at the moment. And, and energy stocks have been sold down very aggressively for a variety of reasons. You know, ESG would be one reason. The second reason would be because people thought that in an economic downturn, energy demand would suffer. And so you ended up with these with these very undervalued shares. But 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 more than that, actually, an awful lot of capital expenditure has come out of the industry in the last few years, presenting a situation where we think there's a there's possibility that actually there might be a real tightness in supply and demand in the future, and you could see energy prices going significantly higher. And you're not paying for that at the moment. So 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 actually, you're able to buy these cheap shares, which give you that potential upside to rising energy prices. And and maybe later we'll come on and discuss inflation. They also give you a, a, a quite a cheap hedge against inflation. That that would be an example of, I guess, what you you know you you might call you, you might call you might call that a theme. Then there are other stocks within the portfolio that are idiosyncratic recovery opportunities. The biggest holding in our portfolio is Royal Mail. Royal Mail is a company where again the share prices the share price got very beaten down last year on this view that lockdown would be very bad for the business and 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 you know ironically actually it turned out that it was very good for the business because they have these two enormous parcels business in the UK and Europe and as we all stayed at home ordering things online uh, volumes went through the roof and uh, it was very very good for profits and so, and so you know we and and and, and and at the same time, you've got a management team who are in there trying to improve the profitability of the UK business. So that, that would be an example maybe of what you might describe as, a, as an idiosyncratic recovery position. You mentioned energy, and uh, I was quite interested earlier this year, you compared things like the oil majors to tobacco um, mm. a few decades ago and being very kind of cheap and that, you know, a few decades ago that benefited investors like in his heyday, Neil Woodford kind of yes. saw it as being more resilient than people thought. How are you kind of playing that? So I, I suppose the, just 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 to maybe explain that a bit further, the, 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 the point that I was making there, there, there were two real points. N- number one is it's a sector that people had begun to use the dreaded U word, which by, by which I mean uninvestable. So back in 2000, people used to talk about tobacco as being uninvestable. And what they meant by that was that they, they, they thought it was an industry in structural decline. They thought that everyone knew that um, smoking cigarettes was bad for you and that therefore vo- volumes would decline forever. So, so they thought there was no future for the industry. And of course, at the same time, it had that sort of double whammy of being, broadly speaking, an old economy industry at a time when everyone wanted to invest in technology companies and so what you got was a not only some very very low starting valuations you know the the PEs and the dividend yields crossed over on those companies and they subsequently went on to produce something close to 20% per annum total returns for about a decade so actually you know people were completely wrong they ended up being absolutely fabulous investments and and as you say you know people like Neil Woodford built his career on that but with energy you've got some similar sorts of dynamics at work so um, again, you, we will hear people talk about energy companies as being uninvestable, and there, there's, there I, I guess people are saying because we, we you know, we, we we all look forward to a greener future. Therefore, demand for fossil fuels is going to go down. Therefore, these the, you know the, these businesses are in structural decline. So, so, so much of the same sort of argument they were making about tobacco. 
and, and, and secondly, you know, again, they are in the area, aren't they, that you might class as old economy. So we, again, we are in a world in which, you know, most investors are more attracted to the, for instance, the FANG stocks in the US than they are um, old economy stocks like energy stocks. And that means you've got some very, very low starting valuations and you, you, you put those two things together. And I think you have got the potential to see a similar sort of dynamic to that that we saw from the tobacco companies, you know, all those years ago, that you you, you might have some some very attractive total returns out of these businesses as um, as actually, you know, the ca- cash flows continue to rise and, you, and fund dividends and you get high high dividend yields and, and reasonable dividend growth in the future. Just maybe add a bit to that. I think some may not, may not realise just how low the valuations are today. If we said to you that at current oil prices, you know, say around $75 Brent, and of course none of us really has much certainty as to where the oil price might end up, the companies are, are sitting on 15, 1.5% free cash flow yields plus. So that's let's call that call that price earnings ratios or free cash PE, however you want to describe it. Let's call it seven times. So it's a, you know, a seven-year payback in theory. You've got to ask yourself, what, what are you expecting to happen to demand for fossil fuels over that seven-year period? Well, again, who, who knows? Because this, you know, this, this landscape is evolving. But I mean, there are there are many commentators out there who who say that fossil fuel demand in seven years will be higher than it is today, not lower. Of course, ultimately, it will decline. It has to. Um, but I think we think that we we think that investors generally massively misunderstand the timescale involved. This is something that's going to happen over decades. So your investment thesis there is kind of predicated on durability, I guess, of the fossil fuel model rather than these companies dealing successfully with the ESG threats in other ways? or I think, I think probably it's all about, I, I think the way that we would probably describe it is that fossil fuel demand is likely to remain relatively robust in at least for the next few years, at a time when, as Ian said earlier, there's been a lot, many people would argue, quite significant underinvestment in the industry. So therefore, fossil fuel prices themselves might remain uh, quite, quite robust, and and that period of healthy level of cash flow generation by the companies is effectively going to buy them time to make the transition that they need to make in in the years beyond that. So we we do believe that actually that the energy companies you know they can be part of the solution here. I mean they they, they need to undertake some very significant change. Obviously, if if we as a planet are going to get to net zero by 2050 or wherever you, th- you, know, you know, whatever the time frame may be, they have our, they have all articulated strategies where, whereby they, in, you know, how they will get to net zero by 2050 and the financial frame within which they can do that. And so, you know, we, we really do believe that you can, you can, you can have your cake and eat it. You can buy into these companies in, in the knowledge or in safe in the knowledge that they will do what they have to do, but at the same time buy into companies where the uh, the you know the financial metrics are very very attractive. Another area, I suppose, um, you're focusing on in the energy space is kind of miners. You've talked about gold miners in the past. You know how how is that looking now? So I suppose the gold price, gold itself is not have the best. 2021 so far having had a bit of a barnstormer last year the, the miners are a, a, another example of what ian was talking about earlier about the about the capital cycle about how you know 
obviously the, the mining industry is it's a, a capital intensive industry with long lead time and you know let, let's be let's let's be honest about this you know m- many of these businesses have not been particularly well managed in the past and they have made the mistake haven't they of over investing in the good times uh, bringing on new supply just the wrong time seeing a price correction in in the individual commodity and then a much leaner period during which the companies you know reduce cost reduce capex um, focus down their managed for value thereby setting themselves up for the for the next uh, for the next upswing in, in the cycle and and the, i mean the gold miners were just a classic example of that when when did the gold price last peak i think it was 2012 wasn't it those management teams, you know, made the, again made the classic mistake of thinking that those the sorts of price, the gold prices that we we're seeing at the time, were 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 here to stay forever. They uh, undertook massive capital investment. There's a lot of uh, acquisition activity within the sector, and of course, just in time for the gold price crash, which we saw in effectively 2013, 14, and, and 15, and. That was extremely painful for the companies, and they had to take some very, very significant write downs. The share prices obviously fell, fell, fell very sharply. But of course, what what that crisis brought about, if you like, was a, a whole scale change in behaviour in the industry. So we now have we have new management teams who are now much more focused on managing for value rather than managing uh, managing for 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 growth, and. Uh, w- with the result that they are now fully be- benefiting from the renewed strength in the gold price. Now, you're, you're absolutely right. Of course, the gold price hasn't re- really gone anywhere for the last few months. But so the, the businesses are being, you know, being managed to, to a much better degree than to a much better degree than they were. And you know, and again, you know, we're, you know, we're confident as as and when you know the, the gold price starts to move up again, then then you know the companies as they can generate very attractive financial returns. I mean, the, the real standout in the mining sector is actually some of the the base metal producers. I mean, I don't know if you mean Anglo-American announced their interim results last week. Again, there's it, enormous amounts of suspicion surrounding these companies that the, the level of profits that these companies are generating today are unsustainable. Anglo-American is priced on around six times 2021 expected earnings. Last year, when, when, when commodity prices are high, which they are, are at the moment, these companies become cash machines. I mean, uh, Anglo-American last week announced it's a £33 share price today. They announced, I, th- I believe, a combination of dividend, interim dividend, special dividend and share buybacks. I think it was around £2.50 a share. That's at the interim stage. So you know, I can't do the maths. You know, six, seven percent. Uh, Capital return, return to shareholders, if you like, through dividends and uh, buybacks at the interim stage. So again, just to give you a flavour of just how how depressed expectations have become, and of course, I mean, you can have a debate about um, fossil fuels and what the demand for fossil fuels is likely to be. I don't think anyone's debating that demand for copper is likely to remain extremely healthy for for a long time to come. So another great example of an area in the market where we think investors, they're looking the wrong way. They've, we scratch our heads. We don't really quite know, quite understand why people aren't, uh, I suppose, taking advantage of these valuations. But uh, but we think there's uh, we think there's a lot to go for. One issue I do take with that, and it's, it's very compelling case you make, but 
you know, you make the point that people are looking the wrong way, but what causes that to improve? Or or is it more you expect to kind of make a lot of total returns from things like the dividend? You know, where when is this big bump going to come? What's what's the catalyst? But it's funny, isn't it? We, I mean, we all, we we had one last year. We, you know, we were having this discussion with a lot of people in the summer of last year. People were saying we we were going around saying these companies ridiculous value. People were saying, yeah, I agree. But what's the catalyst? And then, of course, November the eighth, the Pfizer vaccine announcement comes out, and you know, so, so, some of the companies moved up by over a hundred percent following the, that that announcement. So it's it, it, it's always hard to know, you know, exactly what the catalyst is going to be. I think, as Nick says, we're slightly scratching our heads at the moment because it's. It's as if people are already pricing in the next economic downturn before we've even come out of this one. We, you know, we're only we're only sort of just just into the recovery, and people almost seem to be looking towards the next downturn. And so it's it's, it's hard to know, you know, what's going to um, change people's viewpoints of that. And you you, you could be right, you know, m- maybe maybe in the future that you know the returns do accrue to investors uh, just as a result of. Some quite high starting dividend yields, some quite reasonable increases in in dividends, some share buybacks, et cetera, et cetera. But but but, but the point is, lots of the, lots of the shares in the portfolio, you can get to double digit returns quite easily because of the way the metrics are. And when I look round at the rest of the market, and in fact other markets around the world, I, I don't see that many other countries which are priced to give you double digit investment returns at the moment. I mean, you know, far from it. So. If that did turn out to be the case, well, you know, maybe that wouldn't be so bad. The, the double digits is really, really important. And, and the double digit return is not predicated on a re-rating. So obviously no. a company, hmm. you know, a company with a free cash flow yield of 10%, let's say, that, 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 is, that is your return effectively, because obviously some of that will come, come back in the form of dividend. The rest of it might either come back to you in the form of a share buyback, reducing the number of shares in issue, therefore driving growth in earnings per share and therefore dividend per share in subsequent years. And so if you if you can feel comfortable, you're, you're, you're getting all of your equity return plus in the form of the fundamental return from the business. And then do you know what? Any re-rating is, is just icing on icing on the cake. Then, then that's something that we think that... Um, people should find very attractive. I suppose it's difficult because some people may see it. It's almost looked like a kind of market timing play because, Ian, like you said, since November you or in November and onwards, you had that enormous rally. But obviously the UK um, market, generally speaking, you have, what, five years of just kind of being in the doldrums and people making those very valid points that it looks kind of underrated because no one's interested. But... There's a lot of, I suppose there's been a lot of opportunity cost of not going into those other markets you've mentioned, you know, the popular US tech stocks and so on. There has, although, um, you know, one point we've always made is that the sort of the pattern of returns for value investing is that you can suffer periods of underperformance. And then when things catch up, they catch up very quickly. Um, so a colleague of ours actually showed uh, some very good research. If, you, if, you, if you're invested in value around at the start of 2000, you'd underperformed over sort of, you know, three, five, 10 and 15 years or something. And then at the end of 2000, you'd outperformed over three, five, 10, 15 years. The, the, I, the returns just changed so quickly that that, that one year of returns um, changed the return, you know, changed your pattern of returns over the long term as well. And the same sort of thing happened last year, of course. And the, the, the strength of those returns was so significant that actually our our returns now actually look pretty good over you know over over my most time periods 
Um, and so you, you, you're right to say that, you know, there's been an opportunity cost and there was an opportunity cost. But um, but that, you know, that 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 went away pretty quickly. And I, and, and, and I suppose just just to finish, I, th- I still think from today's starting point, you've got the UK is significantly uh, undervalued relative to the rest of the world. So it's, it, it, it's, it's basically about 45 percent discount to MSCI world. It's the greatest discount it's been for 50 years. If, if you have any <laughs> any belief in the power of valuations at all. That's a good starting point. That that's something that should you, should get you interested in in, in the UK. I, w- I would also say that actually, for the last ten years, the sorts of sectors that are that dominate the UK index are actually the sectors that you haven't really wanted to be in. So you haven't really wanted to be in sort of energy, mining, you know, and financials. You have wanted to be in technology and consumer staples. In the future, maybe that's not the case. Actually, maybe, maybe in the future, you, you know, you you don't want exposure to to tech and, and consumer healthcare. Maybe you do want exposure to some of these sectors which do dominate the UK. So I, th- I think that's another that's another reason really for looking at the UK. Can I, can I pitch it? Because I think this is a really really important question. Can I try and pitch it slightly differently? So, value stocks trade at a discount to higher growth or higher quality businesses. You know, for for good reason, obviously. Because essentially, they provide a more volatile stream of returns. And that's by virtue of the industries in which they operate. And the, what the market should do, of course, is over time is compensate you as an investor for that lumpiness of returns that comes from holding value stocks. And that's what's been referred to in the, in the past as, as the value premium. Um, and and that, that manifests itself in the form of a lower starting valuation. And what you could say is that obviously our job is to, as value as in investors is to try, maybe all of our jobs, is to try and work out that that premium or that discounted valuation. Is that great enough to be to reward me for the lumpiness of returns that I get from from holding va- from holding value stocks? And of course that that premium goes up and down over time, doesn't it? You could argue actually coming out of the financial crisis. So let's say to go back, you know, go back 10 years, go back to 2011, that premium wasn't great enough. Actually, the market wasn't paying you enough to be uncomfortable in these value stocks by, because you know, with the lumpiness, you know, with the lumpiness returns that, come, that comes with them. Well, if you look at valuation spreads today, and, and, we, and we, we've, certainly, we've certainly got plenty of charts to back this up, the valuation spread today, Ian was referring to the, to the UK market versus the MSCI world and the discount that is attributed to the UK market. Well, if you look at value stocks more generally, and I'm sure, Dave, you've seen charts showing this, value stocks are at their greatest discount to growth stocks, again, in, in, in decades. The valuation discount today exceeds, I believe, the discount that we, we saw at the time of TMT in 2000. And so we, we will simply say, you know, we, we cannot tell you when the catalyst will be. We cannot tell you when you will reap that excess return. But the starting point is so extended, if you like, that you know, we, we, we would argue that um, all investors should have some sort of exposure to it. And, and also look at, looking at it from the other point of view, lots of the returns that have come to growth stock, growth investors over the last few years have come through re-raising. You know, yes, these companies have, have have you know some of them have high rates of growth, others others don't actually. But but actually, when you look at them um, as in aggregate, most of the returns have come through a re-rating. So free cash flow yield going from six down to two, 
that is not a sustainable source of returns. It's just like bond yields going to zero is not a sustainable source of returns. So you just can't expect companies to just, you know, continuously re-rate and re-rate and re-rate, eventually get to the stage where, where that trick can't be played again. I suppose that leads me on to the uh, subject of dividends, something a lot of our readers are very keen on. Um, where in the UK, I suppose, are you seeing or do you think you see kind of a, a more stable recovery in dividend payments and are there any areas where you're a bit kind of wary where you think perhaps there are some kind of yield traps let me let me make a couple of general comments and then maybe nick can add some specifics um the the, the general comment is that in our experience every time you go into a downturn um companies act pretty quickly by cutting dividends and and of course and 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 you know this was the last downturn was no exception as as we went into covid and lockdowns there was a lot of uncertainty um you know a lot of people actually were you know wondering whether it was really going to um cause a solvency issue and therefore the quickest way that you can um you know that you can grab cash is to cut your dividends and so people people tend to act very very quickly and then see what the future looks like and of course, actually, as, as we went forward and the vaccine rollout came and the economy started to recover, actually, for a lot of people, things look better than maybe their initial fears. And, and, and we saw this post the financial crisis as well. Post financial crisis, people were very quick to cut their dividends. But actually, as we came out of it, they were quite quick to reinstate them. And, and what you saw was some pretty rapid dividend growth coming out of it. And the last few weeks, obviously, we've had a lot of companies report earnings and report dividends. And, and I think we're beginning to see the same sorts of things happen today, which is the companies who cut the dividends very, very quickly last year. They're, they're bringing them back. Um, and actually, in some cases, they're bringing them back and you're getting share buybacks that we mentioned earlier on as well. And so our, I think our general feeling is that the environment for dividends today is pretty good, actually, because albeit you're coming off low bases that, you know, they are coming back pretty quickly. And you'll you'll probably see some pretty big increases, I think, over the next year or so. Mm. Nick, do you want to, I don't know if you want to give any yeah, sense. No, again, I think there was a very interesting area. I think just just bear in mind, of course, that we, we all like a, of course we all like a smooth dividend stream, but we mustn't forget that um, the value of a company to its shareholders is dictated by its ability to generate and grow profits over time, and therefore its ability to to pay and grow a dividend over time. It's not necessarily dictated by the dividend that the company has to pay. So let me try and let me try and explain what I mean there. So take NatWest Group, okay? Nat, I, I, I'll make I'll make a slightly controversial statement. Maybe we think the dividend generating, the dividend paying capability of NatWest Bank today is probably no different to what it was two years ago, pre-coronavirus. Last year, the banks, um, their capital positions during the course of 2020, so during coronavirus all improved, they got, they got better, despite the fact that the, the banks themselves had to take some pretty significant loan loss provisions as a result of coronavirus, a substantial portion of which, by the way, they're, they're now, they're now uh, writing, writing back. And, and the regulators said, actually, banks, you're not allowed to pay dividends. Not, not, they didn't pay dividends last year because they were, the regulator told them that they couldn't, not because necessarily their dividend-paying capability had been some, somehow uh, reduced, so I think I think that's we we very much bear bear in mind that we would never we as value investors we will we will never put 
smoothness or predictability of a particular dividend payment above the value of the company to its shareholders, which is predicated by its long-term dividend paying capability. And, you, and, and, and another thing, of course, just to just remind yourself of, of course, is that Temple Bar has the ability to smooth dividends by using it by using its revenue reserve. So in 2019, Temple Bar paid a dividend of just over 50p for the year. In respect to 2020, that went down to 38p. So let's let's call that you know, almost a 25% 25% reduction. As Ian, as Ian has said, we, we think that uh, it's certainly a, a good portion of that dividend that was paid last year was taken out of the revenue reserve, i.e. it wasn't dividend that was generated by the companies themselves. We are seeing dividends come back pretty quickly. And we actually, I mean, you know, we've been pretty positively surprised by the speed with which companies are prepared to reintroduce their dividends. So we are, our expectation, certainly in the board's expectation, is that, that dividend of 38p is certainly secure for this year. And we would certainly be hopeful that we can see some sort of growth in, in 2022. That's certainly the plan. So you, you um, think generally you're going, you're returning to a progressive yes, dividend policy? Yes, that, that, that's certainly the plan. And, yeah. and of course, you know, we live in an uncertain world. Of course we do. And of course, nothing, there's, there's risks around everything, isn't there? But, but so far... Companies certainly, the companies in which we invested have exceeded expectation by the speed, speed and degree with which they've reintroduced their dividends. So the, there are no sectors then, because I, I suppose one critique of the UK market before the pandemic was perhaps companies are paying unsustainable levels mm-hmm. of um, dividends, and mm-hmm. perhaps the pandemic has been a good restorative yes. to you know set it back to more realistic levels. Are there any areas where you do? Still worry about kind of the level being dedicated to payouts. I mean, the, the, the one ob, the one obvious area is an area we've not really invested in for a long time for exactly this reason is the utility sector. Utility sector, you know, you you can grab some reasonably high dividend yields there, some sort of you know five, six, seven percent type of type of dividend yields. The, the the problem is those are those are being paid out. They're not being paid out free cash flow. So the companies are actually effectively borrowing money to pay their shareholders as a dividend. And, it, and to our minds, that just makes no sense at all to actually, to actually pay an unsustainable dividend. And, and, you know, some of them will occasionally also issue shares to, to, to top up their dividend paying capability. And again, that just makes absolutely no sense to us whatsoever. You're, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, that, that, that is a sector where we've, we've never really understood or agreed with that dividend policy. Um, we, we, we also worry about the levels of balance sheet gearing. A lot of those companies, of course, they've they've arrived with high balance sheet gearing because they've been paying dividends out of um, debt for you know for a number of years, and we and we don't think the sector is particularly cheaper either. So that yeah, that is almost that's a traditional you know dividend paying sector um, that we've steered clear of for a number of years. I suppose another big question uh, alongside the kind of value chat and the dividend issue is, of course, inflation. What in terms of your portfolio? value stocks generally are seen as being a bit more resilient or even benefiting from rising costs. What parts of your portfolio do you think would fare better? And is there anything you're worrying about? We Actually, in, in, in our presentation, we have a chart and it actually, actually looks at historically as inflation expectations have risen, which sectors have performed well and which sectors have done badly. 
And 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 the, the chart probably wouldn't surprise any any of your listeners. It, it's the bond proxy type sectors, mm. the long duration type sectors tend to do badly. So I mean by that I mean things like technology, consumer staples, you know, household household goods, utilities, those types of sectors. The sectors which historically have done well when inflation expectations are rising are things like energy materials, so mining companies, um, and financials is is another area that have done well. And the, the the portfolio is is well positioned for that actually. So we have about twenty percent in in um, in financials. We probably have about fifteen percent in energy, about another ten percent in in mining, including the gold miners. So you've got nearly half the portfolio in areas that would that, that would probably do well. I think what 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 you know one thing that we we are keen to say to people is that it, it it's not as if we're having to pay up to buy an inflation hedge if that makes sense you're, you're buying businesses which which are reasonable businesses and lowly valued anyway you would be buying them anyway you know even if you didn't have expectations of inflation picking up you know it just so happens that those sectors also do give you um we we think a reasonable protection against inflation so you're you're, you're almost getting getting a sort of double whammy uh, to that extent mm. and finally you um you guys can roam i guess across the FTSE 350. But how is the portfolio looking in terms of market cap? Uh, are there any sectors where you're particularly finding you're, you're wanting to sort of dive deeper down the market cap spectrum? No, we're, 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 we're pretty large cap focused. And I think that there's, 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 um, there's essentially two reasons for that. One is, is that uh, valuations have potentially more, more attractive in, in, the, in, the, in the large cap arena. Um, and if you've, I suppose you've only got to look at the, I, mean, I suppose you just think about the UK, you've only got to look at the differential in performance between the FTSE 250 and the FTSE 100 over a long period of time to understand why why that, that might be. But see, valuation is more attractive amongst the large cap stocks. The other thing is liquidity, stock market liquidity is is uh, is not good at the moment, let's be honest about it. And, and you know, uh, liquidity has been a challenge for uh, for all of us for for a long for a long period of time. You know, liquidity levels in the market have been gradually reducing over time, and so we're very mindful of. Um, you know, you take a position in stock. Of course, there's always a risk uh, that you're wrong, and you need you need to be able to sell it in a, within a reasonable time frame uh, without um, without mo- moving the moving the price to too great a degree. So we're very very mindful of stock market liquidity. So that's 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 the second reason why. We're preferring to stay higher up the, the market cap scale at the current time. So, do you do you not worry about um, kind of lagging that kind of surge in more you know what's seen as more domestic plays? Um, we've got uh, the, we, we we I mean the portfolio's got plenty of domestic plays. So, I mean, obviously, various sectors, sector, but a number of the financials are uh, are basically UK plays. Uh, we've got uh, we haven't talked about retail. We've got three retailers in the portfolio they're all essentially uk uh, uk plays so so actually no we, we think you know if you want to think about that as a risk if you like we're, we're relatively well covered on that very interesting well lots to think about there um but i'm afraid that's all we have time for so uh, thank you very much ian and nick for joining us today and thank Good. you for listening thank you